hard we worked on getting that, you know, like the trick, right? It, it sounds like it's starting on the one, but it's not. It's starting on like the three. So when the one drops, it sounds really weird. Um, it was like pulling teeth with a guitar player to get that accomplished. <laughs> like, I just remember being like, yeah, it's a little tricky, but, you know, I got it. And like two hours later, we were like the band had it. So that was fun. <laughs> so welcome to the Modernist Society. I'm Jason Mojica in Brooklyn. I'm Eric Ottens in Chicago. You know, Jason, anybody with a podcast can suggest that people, you know, like and leave them like a nice review. But I'm thinking what would really help kind of our podcast in terms of like getting ahead of our peers, such as like This American Life and Serial, mm-hmm. go to those podcasts, leave a one-star review and a negative review and point out that they're racist. I think that would really help the Modernist Society podcast quite a bit. That's a good point. I mean, that it is a numbers game, you know. And there's a lot of money at stake in this podcast world, obviously. Yep. Tell me about it. <laughs> uh, on this episode of the Modernist Society, we have a chance to talk to Kevin Kelly, who I think is one of the most interesting guys in the world. Not only was he the founder of Wired magazine back in 1993, but he's also written what I think is one of the most important pieces about the overblown fears surrounding artificial intelligence titled The AI Cargo Cult. His most recent book is called The Inevitable, and it's a book that I push on every person over the age of 30 uh, who has experienced constant technological change without fully understanding its implications. And as of late, he's been focused on AR, that being augmented reality, uh, which I just remember as some weird gimmick that was on Esquire magazine 10 years ago. But specific- Pokemon Go. Say again? Oh, po- oh, yeah, Pokemon Go. Of course. Of course. I'm, You're welcome. I'm, I was I too helped. old to play that. Yeah. Um, so was I, but didn't stop me. <laughs> well, I mean, so related to Pokemon Go, uh, you know, he's looking at how to make the entire world machine readable by creating a 3D spatial representation of the real world that is viewable by many different devices. So basically a one-to-one map for driverless cars to use and things like that. Um Naturally, your friends Jason and Eric at the Modernist Society are going to talk to him about none of those things, uh, not just because we're contrarians, which we are, uh, but because they're actually... No, I'm not. <laughs> because there are actually a, a bunch of great podcast interviews with Kevin on those very subjects. They're all fascinating, and you should definitely check them out. Um, instead, we're going to talk to him about the past. We're going to talk to him about his 1988 book, Signal, Communications Tools for the Information Age. Uh, it's basically a hybrid of the fabled Whole Earth catalog from which it came and what Kevin would eventually develop into Wired. It's a big paperback countercultural handbook of self-empowerment, DIY education, and harnessing technology at a time when normal people did not know what the internet was. Um, it's, it's such a cool and crazy book. It's, it's made up of 10 broad categories that dive into 111 different topics, uh, such as cybernetics, programming languages, typography, zines, investigative journalism, play by mail games, computer bulletin boards, performance art, home recording, visual thinking, applied science fiction, intellectual property, freedom of information, counter surveillance, information imperialism, artificial intelligence, and dream work, to name just a few. 
I most admire that he has kept up his enthusiasm for that because I remember those like early days of the internet. So if you liked ska and we were talking about ska in the early nineties over a computer, we already had like three things in common that were pretty like specific. So, and a lot of those people I'm frankly still in touch with or still friends with. And uh, that seems that got filed in my mind as like such a golden age. And now I kind of look at like Facebook and Instagram and I'm like, I don't know. It's, it's kind of like like TV used to be. It's kind of I'm not that interested, and I don't think it's that great. Mm-hmm. So I admire that he was a little older at, at the time that these things were new, and that he has kept that enthusiasm for sure, like alive still today, is uh, definitely something I picked up from him and thought was really admirable. I was just looking at um, his blog, The Technium. This is a post from April this year. It's uh, 68 bits of unsolicited advice. And it says, uh, being enthusiastic is worth 25 IQ points. So there you go. <laughs> Those are the exact 25 I'm, I'm lacking. On that note, let's, let's talk to Kevin. Kevin Kelly, thank you for joining us. I am so delighted to be here. Uh, So 2019 was the 25th anniversary of your acclaimed book, Out of Control, which looks at the connection between biological systems and artificial ones. And on a near daily basis throughout the year, you tweeted out some great quotes from the book. Um, My favorite being, uh, in creating something from nothing, forget elegance. If it works, it's beautiful. And I'm just going to like pocket that away and use it as uh, for everything. Um, I'd like to start our chat by talking a little bit about what is perhaps uh, a lesser known book of yours. It's from 1988. It's called Signal, Communication Tools for the Information Age. Uh, I recently got my hands on a copy and the first emotion I felt was anger. Uh, (laughs) Well, the reason being I was so mad that I didn't come across it in 1988 when I was 14 years old. And I think it would have truly changed the way that the world looked to me at the time and what I thought was possible, you know. So I I had no idea that there were so many pathways to knowledge and tools that fostered creativity and innovation at my disposal back in the days when Mike Dukakis was running for president. Um, You know, and I think that that I didn't, in the course of being an incredibly curious teenager, stumble upon the book, uh, nor did I stumble upon many of the subjects covered in the book until many years later, serves as kind of a reminder of what the information environment looked like back then. Uh, you know, So basically, unless the buyer at my local chain bookstore decided to stock this book and put it in front of me, there's little chance I would ever stumble upon it or its subject matter elsewhere. Um, yeah. And, and so and even back then, I was going to independent bookstores with more of a counterculture bent where I would purchase physically printed books chronicling the most censored news stories of that year. But somehow I, I missed this book. And it, and it pains me to think that I was this close to being introduced to so much of the <laughs> incredible information contained within. Um, so now I'll actually get to uh, a question, you know, uh, can you talk to us a little bit about how this book came about and what is it you were setting out to do and why? Yeah. So um, the book, for those who haven't seen it, is um, oversized, which is maybe one of the reasons why you didn't see it, because bookstores hate oversized <laughs> books. They don't know where to put them. They take up valuable real estate, so they maybe hide them away. Um, it's an oversized book that is on the model of the Whole Earth Catalogs. So there is a jumble, a puppery, a kind of... Um, whole kind of mosaic of ideas and books and other sources in this. So it's a catalog in that sense. 
It's not meant to be read cover to cover, although people do read it cover to cover. Um, and it, what it's doing, it's, it's a catalog of possibilities. And in this case, these are all possibilities around the theme of communication technologies, primarily both old ones and the ones that were emerging at the time. So that's a highfalutin way of saying this is kind of, was kind of like a source book for all kinds of cool things like zines, how to make a zine, a zine being kind of like, you know, a personally produced magazine. It was like how to hack the fax network, how or what fax machine to even get hmm. um, things on, um, uh, you know, other kinds of mail art using the post office system. How can I hijack the post office system to do something? Um, and then we get into a lot of the electronic stuff of, you know, computers, PCs at the time. Cell, uh, uh, you know, there were some cell phones, but they were kind of very expensive, but I think we covered them. Um, uh, radio, CB radio, uh, hacking radio itself. So it was a pretty broad spectrum on all the forms of communication and how you could get better at it and maybe tools about what would be the best to use if you wanted to print your, make your own, become a small publisher and make your own book, how to do that. So that's what it was. It was a resource guide pointing you to, giving you maybe a little bit of a orientation and pointing you to what we thought was the best thing. And it, in many ways, mirrored where Wired went to later on. Mm -hmm. How I got there was I did this under the auspices of the Haworth catalog. So I was already producing Haworth catalogs on the general scale. And I felt, um, like many others, that there was something really brewing at the edge. The Haworth catalog ran our own bulletin board. It was jacked up bulletin board called The Well, which was the first also was a bulletin board, but it was also the first public access to the internet. The internet was sort wow. of the version of the, all the bulletin boards connected together. It was the network of networks, hmm. the internet. And so, um, so I was aware of this emerging world and I felt that there was something happening there. And I felt, because this is kind of what, I was in was we could do a service by providing kind of the landscape of tools and options and possibilities in a bigger sense for this emerging communications revolution and not just the, the bulletin boards, but that was part of it. So we were putting the bulletin boards in the online world in the context of all the other ways to communicate. In, in looking at it and, and reading kind of the little int the introductions and little profiles of the team working on it, you know, uh, I was thinking about how so much of basically it's something that wouldn't you wouldn't think would exist today just because access to information is so right. easily available yeah. and, and so it's hard to imagine a time when being a seeker of access to information made you part of kind of a subculture so yes right I, I right, wonder, right i wonder when you think about the gang of people who worked on signal and the ethos that drove the project do you see any modern day equivalents in this day when yeah well you know, it's, it's a really good question, the way you framed it. I, I would say one of the most notable people to work on Signal was Richard Cadre, who is now becoming a pretty well-known science fiction author who has a whole couple lines of books. 
that he has been working on. He's been getting um, better as he goes along. But so Richard worked on Signal. I hired Richard to um, um, do part of it. And later on, I hired him to work at Wired on, on a special issue as well. But um, the, the, the original premise, as you're suggesting, of the whole Earth catalog and Signal to some extent was working in this desert of information. It's almost, I mean, I, I find it really very difficult to convey to people like my kids who don't know what the world was like before the internet and before all this stuff, how difficult it was to find out almost anything. So if you wanted to learn how to weld or um, electroplate some metal, there was absolutely nowhere you could go. You couldn't find a book at the bookstore, as you said, independent, even independent bookstores aren't gonna carry that kind of book. You could go to a university library if you could and wanted to, and you might find a book about industrial processes, but it's not going to tell you how to do it at home. There was no place where you could look up who in my neighborhood is doing this or anything. So, so I mean, there was literally no way. And that's the vacuum that the whole Earth catalog came in because what we were doing, we were rounding up through various means, which we can talk about, and identifying those sources of information and making them either available or pointing to them. And so suddenly there was a way that you could find this out. And um, we also were running what we would now call blog posts. But that's if you look at the early articles in the catalogs, mm -hmm. you'll recognize the voice and the shape and the style of them because they're basically blogs. We were running a newsprint, and this was enthusiastic, informed person sharing their passions about something. And there, nowhere else in American magazines or newspapers was anything like that being published. And here it was, people talking about whatever some strange passion they had in full depth, and there it was. So there was literally no way until the Holworth catalog came up. It was... The, basically the internet before the internet and the internet mm -hmm. on newsprint. When the internet came along, the catalog was no longer useful. It just wasn't as good as the internet. But what has happened is that the internet has gotten so big and it's full of so much information and there are so many tutorials on welding <laughs> that we have the opposite need for the whole earth catalog, which is the curation of it, which is saying, okay, I've looked at all the sources for how to weld, and this is the best one. That's why Cool Tools is still going, My our, our website, is because not because it's working in this desert of information, but because it's working in this ocean of information and it's trying to actually reduce the number of possibilities and saying, here, look at this one. And so that need of the curation was something that it was doing in a kind of reverse way and is now ever more needed um, just to work with this abundance or overabundance and to say, you don't have time to watch all these tutorials on how to do electroplating. This is the one that you want. This is in cool tools. This is a site that you started and you reviewed one tool a day. Is that correct? Right. We do one tool a day and we don't review it again. It's all like the whole earth catalog is user generated content. The whole earth catalog invented 
user-generated content because the catalog was written by the readers and we published it very fast on newsprint cheaply and sent it back to them without advertising. So it was user-supported, subscription-supported, and it was basically the internet, user-generated content before the internet. <laughs> the Cool Tools is the same thing. It's, it's user-generated content for the most part. Um, and um, we try to vet it and do our best to try to say, okay, someone's saying, you know, we've looked at the best. And that's sort of the wire cutter, which New York Times now owns, is doing a really fantastic job of that same thing. It's not user-generated content, but it, it's, it's um, evaluating all the other things and saying, we looked at everything and this is the one that you want. I had a couple questions I wanted to uh, run past you. One, I just wanted to share a brief uh, anecdote from my own life, which is when all that kind of stuff was starting to come out, I, for me around late... Wait, wait, what stuff? Oh, dial-up BBS is this idea of this kind of like by mail, maybe the early days of a do-it-yourself culture, all this stuff you were kind of talking about with Signal. Okay. You know, I was in junior high. I found it very exciting. I don't think I had any kind of like philosophical processing of it. I just wanted to pirate the new video game and then I did. Right. And I noticed when speaking about that, you'll still use some language that to me, I don't know if that's, if, if you're limiting it to that era, the stuff that sounds like somewhat maybe subversive keywords, uh, hijacking, hacking. Do you think that that is still a useful approach to technology today? Or is that kind of a bygone era and that outlook is not really healthy? Yeah, that's a quick question. I I think the attitude of hijacking, hacking is still very prevalent. I would say still very appropriate. Um, and, you know, from the beginning, I've used kind of Stephen Levy's versions of hacker, hacking, hacker. And that's when we made the Hackers Conference. You know, we started that. I started the Hackers Conference with Stuart. Um we were using that the beneficial, the, the, the white hat hacking idea of hacking as a kind of a, as a way of investigating and probing and, and jury rigging rather than the, you know, the black hat version of um, stealing. So, um, but, so I think that general attitude of um, hacking is part of this maker world in some senses is this whole, uh, what I call the third culture Third culture is the nerd culture. It's not scientists. Hmm. It's not humanities. It's the hackers who make things and the people who make things as a way of investigating the universe. So instead of being a scientist and making experiments on the brain to learn about the mind, um, the humanities, humanities do self-expression, interior investigation to explore the mind, and the nerds will make an artificial mind to make, to investigate the mind. So they, the nerds investigate the universe by making things. And so I think as long as you're making, um, hacking is part of that, vocabulary and part of that spirit, part of that way that you can you know, take things apart. I was just doing that last week. I was taking apart things to get some parts to hack something else. And I think that is ongoing. I think that's pretty prevalent. Um, the hijacking and pirate stuff, mm, I think that's still pretty, pretty relevant and still a mindset. And, and there are people who, particularly young people, who would see themselves as 
pirates, um, anti-authority. Um, I think that stance is actually one of, will become one of America's best exports. So this idea of questioning authority, as, as you know, many people have noted that almost every single American action movie or, is about the hero who's questioning authority, right? Who's, that's, that's the, almost the American stance. And that's a necessary part, I believe, for, for um, really true innovation culture is the ability to question authority, to question what the status quo is, to question what everybody knows, and particularly to question those who are in authority. And that's sort of one of the um, things that China does not do yet. But that is one of the things I see starting to shift in China. It's going to be many, it's going to be a generation or more because they have some very strong authorities and it's a long culture of that. But that is that necessary thing of asking questions, questions of authority. That's part of the pirate hijacking kind of culture. I think uh, we may be successful in exporting um, that. Yeah, that's fascinating to look at that as like something particularly American. I was going to ask um, if you were directly aware of any sort of like, you know, hangover ties from 60s culture of that sort of subversiveness and I idealism. Yeah, I think there's a lot. I see a lot of YouTube subcultures that are, you know, they're still kind of a homesteading thing. That was one aspect of the whole Earth catalog. The subversive revolutionary aspect um, yeah, you know, uh, I, I, I do. I think a lot of the, a lot of the climate activists have taken maybe at least that style or that stance, that perspective as them being, um, you know, activists. I, th I think it's hard to almost be an activist and not adopt some of the sixties revolution counter countercultural thing. Um, is there a, is there a counterculture, which is a larger question? Um, it's hard to identify a kind of a single unifying counterculture like we had hippies um, that, you know, have their own dress, they've got you know, <laughs> their own language and stuff. We haven't seen that right yet, at least here uh, in the West and even in China. I don't see much of it. So, so the answer would be currently right now, I don't see a unified counterculture, but I would not be surprised to see it arise. Hmm. I would not be surprised if, 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 you know, something arose, emerged somewhere, because I think the sentiment, the, um, the, the dynamics that would propel it and the benefits are all present for it. Um, what it would coalesce around, I'm not really sure, but climate, change is certainly one of them and there you see some kind of beginnings of the green the green things where they're a little bit more willing to maybe you know do something themselves with it which was part of the part of the power of the hippies was actually they didn't just talk about it, but they were doing things like making the communes and, and um, the protests and stuff so um yeah one could one could imagine one could forecast kind of an emerging counterculture, maybe even global in, in scale around something like climate. 
Do you think, I was just thinking, I would take it kind of hard to take seriously if, for example, there was like a Facebook group and it was like, this is like a counterculture Facebook group. I just feel like that does not have the same excitement as sort of having to seek these connections out in other more obscure roundabout ways. But inevitably, I think for any sort of movement these days, then it's just inevitable that the internet's going to be used for communication, organization, planning, meeting. How do you think those, I I mean, do you think that would be a, a, do you think Facebook is like a valid platform for like genuine countercultural movements? Well, I, I mean, put it this way, if there was a true general countercultural movement, they certainly would have a presence on Facebook. Now, whether it could originate in Facebook, I don't know, um, or how important would Facebook be, but it's also, of course, more likely that it's not Facebook that's doing it. It's um, some other new platform that will come up. I mean, people, people, the thing about these platforms that people are maybe not keeping in mind is that these are very ephemeral. Um, MySpace, you know, Flickr, <laughs> uh, they, they have very short lifespans so far. And um, people are all upset about the power of Facebook forgetting about the fact that these monopolies are very ephemeral monopolies that don't last very long and are displaced in their dominance by another platform that, that comes along and can grow as quickly as they grew. And so, um, you know, if we're talking about 10 years from now and there's a counterculture, it's very likely that it ain't, that Facebook is not even the dominant um, platform at that time. And I'd be willing to bet on that. Um, so, uh, but if they're going to be a counterculture, they're going to be present on the, the social media in some capacity. I don't think they're going to, it's not, this is not like the Amish where they're going to kind of um, refuse to, mm-hmm. to go on whatever the dominant social media. Um, my guess, not in the 10-year horizon, but over the 20-year horizon, my guess is that the mirror world, the augmented reality becomes the most social of all the social media where people hang out with the smart glasses. But that's, 20 years from now. See, I was just going to say that Eric actually is a young Luddite and, and he was basically, <laughs> I think the the, sub, the subculture he's looking for is one that obs- obscures knowledge of its existence and is not available via uh, anything other than perhaps the young Well, ages. you know, the, the anti-civilizationists, you know, the, the Ted Kaczynski's and others, um, there's a little bit of that. They're kind of invisible, but they've been around a long time. And But because they're kind of, you know, denying the, 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 the technology. They don't want to um, amplify it. Um, so, so I think in that kind of a church of the subgenius, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, behind the scenes kind of subculture. Well, yeah, by definition, I may not know about those. Um, whether they could be significant, I don't know. The, that's the problem. I mean, the Amish are amazing and I pay a lot of attention to them, but they're never gonna be significant. Um, almost by definition, um, you know, the kind of revolutionary cells that are going to overthrow something. History is not very kind to those mm-hmm. in terms of actually having uh, any long-term effect. They can be disruptive, but, um, you know, even the hippies, the, the sort of total assessment, the, the final assessment, Ted Turner did some work on like Stuart Brand and the counterculture and trying to assess 
what the kind of influence. I haven't read other books on the total final assessment of the influence <laughs> of the hippies, but um, I think they actually had more of an effect on high tech than anything else. Interesting. Like open source and things like that, which kind of have mm -hmm. a, uh, a chain of connection back to the to the hippies. Would you consider the whole Earth catalog part of a hippie culture? Oh yeah, yeah. So so I mean, and that's you know cited as inspiration for for many uh, tech pioneers, correct? That's what I'm, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I'm saying I'm saying that curiously, the 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 influence of the hippies was yeah mostly in the high tech rather than anything right, right. <laughs> as uh, someone who has clearly been involved in seeking new ideas new right. technology and new points of view uh what is it like for you to see this trend uh, of people who use the same technology that you've celebrated for so long to actively try to shut down discourse to close off access yeah. to ideas they deem problematic and in some cases the technologies the technology companies themselves who are usually seen as innovators doing this themselves. Yeah. Um, it's a, uh, it's a hard problem. I, I, I take a little bit more, I'm a little bit more, mm, mm, I'm not as bent out of shape about it too much because um, we're talking mostly about social media here. Social media is um less than 10,000 days old, it's still an infant, <laughs> it's still figuring out what it wants to do. And I think we need to be a little bit more generous in allowing it to make mistakes. Part of the genius of Silicon Valley was demoralizing failure. We're saying, um, previous to that, if you lost a million dollars of other people's money, you were considered um, bad character. You're not going to be given money again. Now, properly if you lose a million dollars you've earned your badge and they're going to give you another million dollars <laughs> so um we do demoralize failure and say failure is part of the process is essential to scientific knowledge it's essential to artistic you have to make mistakes you have to learn from making mistakes um but we haven't been able in being given that same generosity and importance to social media for some reason so you're not allowed to make mistakes that's governments are not allowed to make mistakes and that's in part because social media platforms have some of the qualities of a government. And so um, um, we've been maybe evaluating them as if they were governments. And uh, I think there are, some, there are a third thing. There are quasi-corporations or quasi-governments or some other things, and they should have some room to do experiments and make mistakes. And um, the problem in this case or the challenge is that this is a very, very difficult problem to overcome which is how do we regulate the quality of information when it's coming up from the bottom? And I think the answers are not obvious. Um, I tend to a solution where you don't trust or don't even try to evaluate the veracity of information. The only thing I believe that you can evaluate is the source. And you wanna have the source embedded into it in some way and you have trusted sources and that's basically it. You can't, we're beyond the point of, of being able to evaluate the veracity of information in real time. And, and you can only do that over time in you know, long periods of time. But the only thing you can evaluate in real time is the source. Do you trust the source or not? And so um, that's my solution, but there's lots, you know, there's problems and it has still to be, and, and also, and by the way, I'm very anti-anonymous 
And because I, I believe that you need to have um, true names, people standing up for what they believe, being able to go back to them in other ways. Um, anonymity is like a rare earth metal that's essential, but only in very, very small doses. Hmm. So um, uh, part of what we want is we want to have true names. We want to have uh, the source and providence for information to be embedded into it and that you can then become to uh, evaluate whether you want to trust it or not based on where it's coming from. And so um, that's my solution, the necessarily solution that will work. And I think it's gonna take several revs uh, of this to figure out um, how it works for the most people. Um, there's contradictory demands on it right now. Don't censor me, censor me. Or I mean, censor it, don't censor it. Uh, you know, whatever it is, uh, only censor the, the, <laughs> the wrong stuff, only censor the falsehood and who's gonna decide? It's very, very tough. And so, um, uh, yes, I think we can improve it. I'm not, um, what's the word I want? I, I, I believe that we should allow some experiments to fail um, on the way to figuring out how to do it. Mm -hmm. But beyond the technology, do you think that there is a change in the mindset? And again, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say these are sweeping generalizations. <laughs> so, right. so basically looking at a, a subculture of people who were seeking to access to information versus this will be a caricature the kids today who are anti-enlightenment and want to cancel everyone do you think that there is a, like an actual market shift or is this perhaps overblown i think it's probably uh, overlooked so so one of the one of the blind spots that americans have is to think that what happens in america is what's happening in the world hmm. okay and um i try as much as possible because i spend a lot of time in china to remind myself that America is an increasingly small part of the world and the world, the modern world, and that we shouldn't confuse what's happening here with what's really happening. Um, you know, one of the reasons why China has a great wall on censorship is this is what they say, and it's true, is to censor out fake news and rumor, which is very rampant in China. And that's their reason for having these censors. And they actually do do that. They also censor political stuff, but, I'm, but that's mm -hmm. the, the proximate reason is to control the incredible rumors and destructive misinformation that was going through the social media in China. So um, the bane of the old media world is propaganda. The bane of the new media world is conspiracy, right? So these messy media don't do propaganda very well, but they really are susceptible to conspiracy. So we need to figure out how to control conspiracies and including the conspiracies of Flat Earth or QAnon and all this other kind of stuff. That's you know, that, that's going to be with us for, for a long time because that is the general weakness of these messy um, kinds of, of networks is that they're prone to conspiracy. Um, so we have to have 
figure out our anti-conspiracy um, solutions. I don't think it's necessarily always going to be censoring, which is what some people are asking Facebook and Twitter to do. That's what they are doing. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, in terms of, is there kind of a shift in the young people to believe, I don't see that worldwide. Um, that's not my impression. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly there are, you know, groups of folks in many country who may be susceptible, but I don't feel, or I don't sense that this is a, a global phenomenon. Um, but then again, of course, to my point is that, you know, um, whatever passion idea that you are, there are certainly going to be a thousand people in the world who believe it and are with you. That's the origin of the thousand true fans. And so um, there are going to be at least a thousand people who adhere to what you're suggesting. Um, but that's just one out of a million niches. Uh, Kevin, can I... I'd like to ask you about Vanishing Asia. I'd love to hear about the book, but I'd also really like to hear about your adventures in the years you were taking all the photos that make up. It's nearly 1,000 pages. Yeah, so the book has been delayed um, because of COVID. I've completed the book. It's completely done. It's just sitting here. Um, but the publication of it has been delayed and probably won't arrive until late 21. Hmm. Um it is, as you said, uh, almost a thousand pages. There's nine thousand images of a disappearing Asia, and I define Asia as all the countries between Turkey and Japan. So there's a lot of territory. Uh, I spent forty years seeking out the little corners where there was something that remained of a kind of a uh, previous era, previous um, tradition. Um, what to say about it? Well, um, one thing is that w- while the book tried to document with still images, very old fashioned, um, capture these things, video would have been a lot better, but it was beyond the possibility when I was doing it. Um, I have little nostalgia for those images. I'm not trying to stop them from going away. I'm not trying, I'm not lamenting the fact that they have gone. I understand completely why they're going, because if I was living in those countries, I would be one of the many people leaving it behind and heading to the condo in the big city. And, um, but nonetheless, I think there is a value in seeing what they are because they offer, they, the, the images offer an alternative otherness to some of the common problems like design, uh, costuming, architecture, um, uh, you know, festivals, spectacle. So all so things that we're still interested in doing, here are other ways of doing it. Here's, 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 here's some, some different ideas, different solutions. And so as a kind of a source book for alternative ways of doing things, um, here they are. I'm not suggesting that, that we have to do those or go back to those or whatever it is, or that it's a shame, entire crying shame that they're uh, um, disappearing. No, I understand it. I'm just saying here they are. We can learn from that. They are going to go away. 
sometimes for good reasons, but here they are all in one place. Uh, enjoy this magnificence um, that we may never see again, but here they are. And so um, I just want to kind of give you the tenor of um, where I am about that. Um, I had the privilege, I would say, the remarkable privilege of traveling to see them at a very special moment in time on this planet when ways that had been running for thousands of years um, were available to see that were previously you needed a lot of money and an expedition and all kinds of wealth to get to, to travel. Um, but I could see right at this moment when it was shifting and they were, they were still there, but I, you could get there riding the back of a Jeep with no money. And um, that didn't last very long because now you can get there very, very easily uh, with a car and air conditioning. But of hmm. course, there's not much of that left. There's a little bit left, which I'm still going to, but it's harder and harder to see, even though it's easier and easier to get to. But there was a moment when there was a lot to see and it was the first time it was easy to get to and I happened to be there. So, What were the circumstances of your first trip? I um, had never been out of New England, had never eaten uh, Chinese food, had never held chopsticks, didn't know any Chinese. I didn't know. I mean, I, I was incredibly cloistered and parochial. I never had Italian food. I, I had never had, <laughs> I had eaten just my mom's cooking. I had been in a restaurant maybe twice through high school. Okay, so... This, so I had a friend who was studying Chinese in Taiwan who invited me there to visit him. And I was wanted to be a photographer. I was photographing. I thought this would be a good place to photograph. And I'd read uh, uh, Walt Whitman, Leaves of Grass as a poem. And I, my gas gets blown because I decided I became seized with the, the desire to travel. Where should I go? My friend invites me to go to Taiwan. He says, I can show you around. Okay, that sounds good. I had no idea. I mean, I still remember coming in from the airplane into Taipei. It was like, oh my gosh, I am not in Kansas. It was an alien world in so many ways. And for whatever reason, I was hooked. And that would have been maybe the end of it, but I met two um, Swiss travelers who were traveling the world who clued me into the secret, which was you didn't need to be invited by a friend to visit a country. <laughs> you could just go to India or the Philippines. It's like, <laughs> what? You can? Really? I don't know anybody there. You don't need to know anybody there. You can just go. So I went to the Philippines while I was in Taiwan. My friend left, he left me there on my own. And I was so struggling with Chinese. I, they said there was English in the Philippines. Oh, okay. I got on a, I bought a ticket to the Philippines. There was no guidebook anywhere. It didn't exist. I had no maps. I didn't have a single address of anything. Um, I, I knew not a single person. I had no idea about the country. I was, I was made, there was a map on the back of the seat and there was, I looked at it and said, oh, well, there's a lot of islands here. And that was the extent of my knowledge when I landed at the airport. Um, there were no other travelers, no other tourists. Um, 
And so... Um, I'm sorry if this <clears throat> was covered and I it eluded me, but around when was this or around how old were you when at this time? But this is 1971. Wow. Um, I was... Yeah, 20, that's great. That's 21, great. 22. Actually, it was less than that. 71, 72. I've been 20. I was 19. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was um, pretty incognito. And, and one of the, the consequences of not having that kind of knowledge, again, talking, going back to this idea where there was, there was all this ignorance, there was nothing known, there were no mm-hmm. guidebooks, was that um, I spent a lot of my time kind of in very boring places. <laughs> Because I had no idea mm-hmm. what to see. Uh-huh. You can ask local people, but they're in some some ways not the best people to ask about because they all they're very local themselves. They haven't been out of their own island. Mm-hmm. They don't know what's on another island. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so it was a very inefficient kind of traveling. I discovered that later on, going through places. Like I was in all this time in, in, in Afghanistan. I never got to Bamiyan where the Buddhist statues were because I didn't know how to get there. Hmm. I couldn't figure out where they were. And so um, uh, that was the kind of state. That's it was my first trip going there to Taiwan and then went to Japan, t- took a freighter to Japan, hitchhiked around Japan, trying to learn Japanese. And um I didn't see a single other um, gaijin, white person, in Japan for the five months I was there. Um, so that was sort of the state. It was it was a very special time, as I said, because uh, in J- even Japan in, in 71 was only uh, 20 years away from the war or so. And, um, you know, it was, there were still traditions that have disappeared completely dress and stuff like that um that were going on so so um i was very lucky i was very lucky and some of the highlights that i remember was taking a overnight bus from um from india i think it was lucknow into the Kathmandu valley we took an overnight bus it was five dollars to to go to from india into nepal and coming into Kathmandu in the morning it was I was like tingling hmm. because they were like, it was, I don't know. It was like going to another planet and visiting another planet because here was these people, they all had their costume on, their little hats, their little uh, thing. And, and, and Kathmandu itself was a city of, of, of almost a million people with no, not a car, no cars, no bicycles. It was a pedestrian city of all, almost a million it was remarkable. It was so different. And it was medieval in every sense of that word. And it was like a time machine. So, so that's what it was. I was riding a time machine. I was coming in and it wasn't like I was traveling in, in space. I was actually going back in time. And it was like, oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. And um, that is not possible anymore. And so I was so lucky to to have seen that. And in all of that, you never crossed the line and thought, hey, I should just live here in any of those oh, places? Quite the opposite. Hmm. Quite the opposite for me. It was like, no, because, <laughs> well, I mean, I got hepatitis in Kathmandu, right? I mean, <laughs> they, 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 they were have, there, was, there were streets called shit street. 
That's mm-hmm. where everybody would go crap because they didn't have toilets. It's like, do you want to live there? No. Mm-hmm. Um, Japan, okay. Japan was was cool. I you could, but you are not ever included. Gaijin, even fluent speaking Japanese, are not really included. It's really tough in Japan. So there were all these reasons. When I came back from was, like many people say, I kind of appreciated progress. It was like, oh my gosh, I understand what we have gained. I I see a little bit better what the price is, but I'm willing to pay that price. Can you talk a little bit about that price? The price is, all right, Somebody, let's say somebody in uh, the Nepalese village in the Himalayas, standing there, you've got your green rice terraces, you have this view of the wall of the Himalayas and snow, it's just fantastic. And you're there in your very large house, maybe it's a Sherpa house, it's really bigger than my house at home. You've got organic food, you have a very strong family and total community support and you know who you are, okay? That's what you're giving up, mm-hmm. okay? What you're gaining is possibilities and choices because when you're living there in that house, you, have, you can only be what your father was or your mother. You don't have a choice of being a mathematician or um, a gymnast or a web designer or anything like that at the time or a graphic designer. So, um, so the price of, of those possibilities was a loss of um, security, a loss of identity, uh, a loss of the, the community, the, the coherence of community, and all those things that are very important and very good. Well said. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned Af- Afghanistan uh, just uh, as a place that I've uh, been a few times only in the past decade. Uh, I'm curious about uh, what it was like when you were there and when, when that was. Talk about medieval. It was absolutely medieval. So I was in northern Afghanistan. Uh, there were some towns. I, I don't know. You know, Harat was pretty big, but um, Mazar Sharif. And there were other towns there where um, there are no paved streets. There were um, watchmen who would go out with kerosene lanterns. They would light the lamps of the street at night by hand because there was no electricity. This is a town. Um, And uh, yet it was a very rich kind of developed culture. They go into the uh, the restaurant, the inn, uh, because they didn't have running water, though, but they, unlike India, they would have these metal basins where they had running water where you turn a little spigot and the water comes in so they refill it so it was like uh, i don't know how to describe it coming from india places where they didn't even have that this was like genius levels of civilization Mm -hmm. where they were replicating or not replicating but they were servicing they were doing a kind of a it felt like civilized even though they only had mud and wood and fiber and very little metal and no electronics to try and have a high level. This was, of course, the Persian kind of civilization. And so there were many, you know, many attributes of civilization. It kind of reminded me, I don't know, of the way that Burning Man tries to replicate 
civilization in a kind of out in the middle of the desert using two by fours. <laughs> and um, there was something about Afghanistan and its medieval towns uh, that coming from the East felt very comforting. I later went on to Iran and I lived in Iran, which was, you know, half again, uh, the, 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 the Western half of Afghanistan is Dari speaking and the Eastern half is the Pushtu, Pakistan. But um, I, I got a sense of that kind of deep ancient history that was of civilization, how people coming to Afghanistan, uh, Persia could say, oh, wow, these people were really civilized. But um, the, the, the thing about it was, was it was totally medieval. The, the, the people's thinking was medieval. Their, their, their orientation, their, their belief system, of course, you know, was very strict, ancient ways, you know, um, child brides and the whole thing and p women and carpets all being made by girls who that's all they did. And so it was, it was, um, even like Kathmandu and it was a time machine and, mm -hmm. um, uh, Oh yeah. I rem I have a picture actually of a town in Northern uh, Afghanistan. And then the remarkable thing I, I remember being amazed by at the time was that this was a pretty large town. It was a market town and there was not a single bit of signage in the entire town. There were no signs partly because most people did not know how to read mm -hmm. partly because you kind of didn't need to because everybody knew it, but it was mostly because they were illiterate. Right. And I was like, wow, that's, that's a time machine. That's a time machine. Uh, I know we're coming to the end of our time. And, and so I'll just have one last question. And you've often described yourself as an optimist. And, and so I'm curious, uh, What's the, what's the bright side of the coronavirus pandemic in terms of the shakeup of this of society, especially in this country? So, um, I think one of the things that, that we'll come away with this is understanding that uh, forevermore that viruses are sort of the um, again the price of this very urban existence. It's not going to be the last one we have. Um, we have other viruses that we have somehow so far accepted, like the hundred thousands of people dying from flu every year. Well, if we could do the same thing that we did for COVID for flu, would we, and why wouldn't we, right? If we could, if we could prevent 200,000 deaths of influenza just in the U S every year, shouldn't we be doing the same things? I don't think we are, but what I'm saying is that that, contagion that flu will be seen like pollution and other things as just something endemic to urban life that we need to deal with. And one of the ways that we have to deal with it, and the only way we can is to take a global view of it. So, so just kind of dealing with pandemics simply at the national level is not sufficient. So one, I believe that one bright side coming out of it is we will, have to take a more global coordination to deal with whatever the emerging um, viruses in the future will be. And secondly, whether it's 
having more testing, which I, th- I mean, the, to me, the ingredients of that kind of a program would be fast universal testing everywhere. And then secondly, vaccines and maybe even mandatory vaccines. But the point is, is that these um, processes, these, these um, inventions don't really mean unless they're applied globally, which means that we need to have vaccines to everybody in the world, everybody really testing. So, so for me, I hold out the possibility of it kind of bringing in some kind of universal healthcare at some level, even if it's in trying to manage these things. And I mean by universal, I mean globally universal, not just mm-hmm. American universal. So it's possible that the requirement of the cities, their susceptibility to viruses require a global response and that global response will reach everybody on the planet because that's the only way you can kind of deal with it. So that would be my silver high, uh, lining if it does occur. I, uh, right now, there's only marginal evidence that it would, but that would be my hope. That was excellent. Well, Kevin Kelly, thank you very much for joining us. Really appreciate your time. Uh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for the conversation. I love the fact that you're asking about signal and other things that, that I don't usually get to reminisce about. Thank you. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks. Thanks for humoring us. <laughs> All right. Take care. All right.